Okay. Well, it looks like most people are kind of wandered back in, so we'll go ahead and start the next session. And it's my pleasure to introduce my uh, kind of co-director for the course, Dr. Marion Peters. You all know her very well, I'm sure, a hometown favorite here. Um, so Marion is a professor of medicine at UCSF, and she's a hepatologist. She's also the chief of hepatology research at UCSF, um, and also leads us in the ACTG as the chair of the Hepatitis uh, Transformative Science Group. So. Um, certainly well-versed in the area she's going to speak to you about, which is the um, HCV-induced cirrhosis or end-stage liver disease and extrahepatic manifestations of hepatitis C. Marion? Thanks very much, Dave. So we're sort of going a little bit away from um, treatment and talking about cirrhosis and other extrahepatic manifestations for 30 minutes. And what you're going to be able to do is diagnose cirrhosis, recognize and manage complications of cirrhosis, extrahepatic manifestations, and when to refer for transplant. It seems an awful lot in 30 minutes, but I've, I'm going to gallop. So here's the question. Which of these statements is untrue, not true? Current treatment of HCV genotype 1 differs in patients with cirrhosis. Cryoglobulins are uncommon in hepatitis C. All patients with cirrhosis require EGD. All patients with cirrhosis require HCV monitoring. HCV RNA levels do not predict fibrosis stage. Okay, we have to come back to that at the end. So I'm going to go over cirrhosis, hematologic, dermatologic, rheumatologic, renal and endocrine manifestations. And the reason I um, am talking about the importance of knowing if a patient has cirrhosis is not just that they may decompensate and require monitoring, but that the outcome for disease is different. And I see why everybody moved over here. You can't see the slide. So here you can see this is with Bisepravir, triple therapy for genotype 1. Blue is PEG-RIBA. Uh, yellow is Bisepravir response-guided treatment. And green is fixed treatment for 48 weeks. And you can see if you have F0, F1, or F2, it doesn't matter if you get response-guided or 48 weeks, you have similar efficacy rates. But in patients who have um, marked fibrosis, as you've seen already this morning, they have decreased responses compared to those with mild fibrosis, and response-guided therapy is even worse. And you see exactly the same thing with telaprevir that the response goes off, starts to decrease as your fibrosis goes up, going across the right. So we need to know if a patient has cirrhosis because the length of treatment is different. Knowing HCV RNA levels doesn't tell you anything about uh, histology. Here's a nice study looking at various genotypes with increasing fibrosis across the x-axis, and you can see the RNA levels are not at all predictive. 
So you can have an RNA level of 3 million and live to be 100. You can have an RNA level of 100,000 and be on the transplant list. Similarly, serum ALT levels are not useful in terms of predicting severity of disease. So in red are normal ALT percentages, and in purple are elevated ALT. And you can see that without fibrosis at all, there is a little increase in the mild of normal ALT. But there's still plenty of normal ALT percentage seen in cirrhotics. So knowing the ALT level won't help you either. So after you develop chronic liver disease from any cause, but for today we're talking about hepatitis C, patients go on to develop compensated cirrhosis initially and then can, decrease, uh, can be decompensate with the development of a variceal hemorrhage, ascites, encephalopathy, or jaundice. Hepatocellular carcinoma itself can be the cause of uh, decompensation. So how well do we assess that? We know that you patients transition from compensated to decompensated at about 5% per year. And the best predictor is actually hepatic venous pressure gradient, which is an invasive measure to wedge and get a number. And you know that if you do a TIPS, you get your wedge pressure down under 12 will decrease the risk of bleeding. Cancer, I told you, can trigger decompensation and is a predictor of death. So how do we assess without doing an invasive measure such as a wedge pressure? There are two um, tools that have been used for many years. CPT was developed in the middle of last century and then over the last decades, model of end-stage liver disease, or MELD, has largely taken over. So a CPT uses clinical assessment, hepatic encephalopathy and ascites, and then bilirubin, albumin, and prothrombin time, or INR, as the laboratory assessment. And if you look like everybody in this room, then you are a child's PUA with normal levels. If you look like a lemon on a stick, you're over the right here with ascites, jaundice, coagulopathy. And nobody needs to do the scoring system. It's very obvious your patient has end-stage decompensated disease. But it's the people in the middle who have a bit of this or a bit of that where you have to add up the numbers. And A is uh, CPT 5 and 6. Greater than 9 is a child's pew. C. This has largely been overtaken by the MELD score, which you can calculate on any computer. You just plug it in, go to Google, ask for the MELD calculator, it comes up, you plug it in. Uses bilirubin, INR, and creatinine only. If only the bilirubin is elevated, your MELD is 10. If you double the bilirubin and the INR, you double your MELD. If you then Double your creatinine, your MELD goes up a little bit more, and with more INR, it goes up in the 30s. Why is this important? That we allocate organs by MELD score, so the highest MELD is the patient that's offered the next liver. And in uh, Northern California and Southern California, you need a MELD in the 
high 30s with blood group O to get a liver transplant and for blood group A in the 20s. Now there are parts of the country where you can be offered a liver with MELDs in the teens. MELDs also predicts three months mortality after TIPS procedure and uh, predicts mortality after surgical intervention. Now when you're doing the mortality after surgical intervention, it differs whether you're doing uh, a surgery in the neck or a surgery in the abdomen, which is obviously a higher risk procedure from decompensating your liver disease. So this is an important slide because it shows you the survival time after the first decompensation of liver disease. And so if you're HIV negative in blue, 25% of patients will die within a year after the first decompensation. And often patients being re doctors referring patients say, well, they just had a little bit of ascites, but that's enough. So a little bit of ascites, a little variceal bleed, a touch of encephalopathy, one in four will be dead in a year. If you co-infected, it's one in two. And if you look at five-year mortality, only 44% of the mono-infected HCV patients are alive compared to only one in four of the co-infected. So it's important to think about transplantation with the first decompensation because that may be the patient's best chance of getting one. Decompensation, and often patients will develop ascites, which initially can be diuretic responsive, then they become refractory, then they develop hyponatremia, then they develop hepatorenal syndrome. And each stage reflects a more deranged circulatory state. And I spare you the underflow overflow thing that my eyes glazed over in medical school and go straight to treatment. You're diuretic re responsive, sodium restriction, and spironolactone and ferrosamide at a three to one ratio. Usually start with 7520 and you can increase up to 300 and 160. But sodium restriction is critical because these patients aren't salt, total body salt poor, they're total body water excess because the renal is the kidneys are not recognizing that they need to excrete free water and retain and they just keep retaining water because they think their volume down, the patient is volume down. So if the patient takes in more salt, they just increase how much water. So I say to my patients, if it tastes good, it has salt in it. So it's when they say, I don't know what a low salt diet is, that's easy. Um, no salt in the food, no salt on the table, nothing canned, nothing frozen, it's frozen in salt, canned in salt. Refractory ascites, this is when patient really is uh, restricting their salt and on an appropriate diuretic, but they're unable to, you're unable to get rid of the ascites. Then large volume paracentesis, and to remind you, you need to replace each liter removed with 50 cc's of 25% salt poor albumin. You don't do that, you'll end up in the patient in a catab uh, catabolic state and the patient will end up infected. 
TIPS is an alternative, uh, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunting, which leads to a higher transplant-free survival, but also a higher rate of hepatic encephalopathy. So you're giving up one complication for another one. And you aim to get the wedge pressure under 12. We use albumin, midodrin, and octreotide to cause to uh, increase oncotic pressure and cause vasoconstriction with mixed success, but we feel better about it. Um, vasopressin 2 receptor antagonists have been used. They're more difficult, but there are ongoing studies looking at it. Hyponatremia is really the most deranged state, and you don't give 3% saline, you give flu uh, fluid restriction. And we've tried midodrine with pretty poor uh, successes, but again, vasopressin 2 receptor antagonists are now available. Bleeding from varices. You need to know if your patient has cirrhosis because between a third and 80% will have varices if they have cirrhosis. So it's a very high prevalence of varices and between a quarter and a half will bleed. So it's not a rare event. If you have varices, you have a high chance of bleeding. And if you don't die the first time, you'll re-bleed in about 70% of cases. So it's critical to know. And if there are no varices in a patient with cirrhosis, you repeat the endoscopy in three years in compensated patients, child's A, or every year if they have decompensated disease because they have much higher risk and they don't need prophylaxis. If they have large varices or medium varices, if they're child's A, we generally just put them on beta blockers. If they're B or C and have evidence of uh, bleeding, then we'll put them on beta blockers and band ligation. The data suggests that that's or is an and, that both together is better than either alone. Now, if they're smaller varices and the patient's decompensated, they go on beta blockers. And it's non-selective beta blockers because you don't want the cardiac beta block effect. You want the splanchnic beta blocker effect. So you want to decrease the portal pressure and decrease the risk of bleeding. So you put them on propranolol or natalol to decrease the heart rate to 60. Now, these patients all have low blood pressures because they have end-stage liver disease. So, teeny doses. Big people can sometimes take 20 milligrams twice a day of propranolol. I have little people who take five or two and a half twice a day, and it's just enough because they're sort of bordering on hypotension at the best of times. But it's really important because the risk of bleeding is so high. What about hepatorenal syndrome? This is a very, very common occurrence. When, if you look at hospitalized cirrhotic patients, it's up to a quarter of patients have acute renal failure. And at the most common cause is hepatorenal. It's a form of acute renal failure and followed by ATN, which is much less common. You diagnose it by urine sodium less than 10. 
Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis in patients with ascites is the most common type of bacterial infection in patients, hospitalized cirrhotic patients. And anybody who says, I don't see it, it means I don't look for it. Because the patient does not present with fever, they do not present with high white count, they do not ring a bell for the infectious disease doctors, they don't have tenderness, all they have is worse liver disease. So they come in with unexplained encephalopathy or worsening encephalopathy, worsening jaundice, touch of renal failure, creatinine's gone up. The commonest cause is they in fact have SBP. And you diagnose it by tapping the ascites. Take off 40 cc's, put it in blood culture bottles, 10 cc's each, put it in a purple top CBC tube, and your, your cell count will come back the same day. If your poly count is over 250 or total white cell count over 500, that's diagnostic. The blood cultures may take a few days. You have to put it in blood culture bottles because there's very few bugs, so it needs the happiest medium to grow. And studies from 30 years ago repeated every 10 years to see if they've changed continue to show that if you just send it down in the sterile black tube, around 30 to 40 percent will be positive. If you send it down in blood culture bottles, it's over 85 percent. And you start treatment immediately, you, you have a high white count. And the uh, first line treatment is cephalosporins as uh, 80 percent plus are E. coli. And renal dysfunction is the main cause of death. And some very elegant studies from Barcelona have shown that if you give the patient intravenous albumin on day one and three, you will prevent the renal dysfunction. And if especially if their bilirubin's high, their creatinine's elevated. The problem comes in how to do the prophylaxis and how to prevent recurrence. Ten years ago, it was sort of easy. We put everybody on trimethoprin sulfurs three times a week. Then we started getting resistance, so we switched to ciprofloxacin once a week. Then we started getting resistance. And there are eight of us at UCSF looking after end-stage liver patients, and there are seven different protocols. The eighth person just flip-flops between the other seven. Because there's no right answer. So some people start with Cipro every day, some people once a week, some with everyday trimethoprin sulfurs, some with three times a week, some norfloxacin. It's the big problem of the drug resistance issue. But for sure, treating prophylactically after, or treating after a patient's had an episode of SBP decreases the number and the severity of subsequent infections. Primary prophylaxis if the MELD's over 12 or in HIV co-infected patients if the MELD's over 9. They don't tolerate bad things happening. Hepatic encephalopathy is most likely precipitated by infection or bleeding. So SBP or urinary tract infections are the two biggest, so you have to keep tapping the belly. 
uh, GI bleed because of the protein load, electrolyte imbalance, portal vein thrombosis may be what tips the patient over, or worsening liver disease, or hepatocellular carcinoma. Forgot that one. And the treatment really aims to reduce production of ammonia from the colon. We don't know what the toxin is, but we know it's associated with a high protein load. So non, by non-absorbable disaccharides, usually lactulo, uh, lactulose or lactitol, non-absorbable antibiotics, neomycin has been almost completely replaced by rifaximin now because it has few, very few side effects. And I just want to make a point that we don't recommend protein restriction. It doesn't mean we recommend three steaks a day. We mean we recommend a normal protein diet, which is around 40 grams a day. Because if you put patient on 20 gram or less protein diet, you'll worsen the nutritional status, you'll decrease the muscle mass, you'll make their risk of survival much lower survival and much poorer outcomes after transplant. So there is a, a normal diet is what you can take. Like in a hospital, you can't get a high-protein diet in a hospital. They just don't make them. People have them at home. You just remind the patient a balanced diet. Monitoring guidelines for cancer. All patients with cirrhosis and hep C need to be monitored for hepatocellular carcinoma. And as Dr. Price said this morning, all patients with hep B who have cirrhosis should be monitored. Or, or Asian males over 40, Asian females over 50, Sub-Saharan African males over 20, and anybody with a first-degree relative with cancer. So there are much more complicated guidelines for hepatitis B. Screening strategy. Ultrasonography at six months is the standard recommended by uh, all the guidelines. The Americans don't recommend alpha-fetoprotein testing. The European and Asians do. And the risk every six months is recommended because the risk is about 1% to 4% a year of cancer in patients with hep C cirrhosis. And the tumor growth doubling time is about 136 days. If you find a lesion, then you would go on to do a quadruple phase CT or an MRI to determine what the lesion is. And you use a quadruple phase because you need pre-injection, then post-injection, followed by delayed washout. The tumor is supplied by the hepatic artery, whereas most of the liver is supplied by the portal vein. So the tumor will light up first, then the rest of the liver will light up and the tumor will fade out. So when do we refer to transplant? You should refer any patient with a decompensation, ascites, encephalopathy, GI bleed, or synthetic dysfunction. Refer early. The, the transplant center may say they're too early, come back, but at least they've started to see them. Patients who have hepatocellular carcinoma, who have one lesion less than five or three lesions, the greatest three, are candidates for liver transplantation. 
And there are many issues confounding patients' ability to reach transplant, including medical, social, geographic, especially in Northern California where distances are enormous, and insurance. Patients need to fulfill listing criteria, not just for the liver, that they need a new liver, but the rest of their body can withstand a transplant. They don't have a cancer. They don't have a terrible heart that the surgery would kill them. Psychosocial support. So it really requires a multidisciplinary approach. So if you're treating patients with cirrhosis for hepatitis C, with interferon-based therapies, you have a risk of that patient decompensating. So you have to have the discussion before you start the treatment. You are, I think you might be a transplant candidate. Talk to the transplant center. Or you're clearly not a transplant candidate. If you decompensate, you will die. Do you still want this treatment? And here's the survival uh, post-transplant for patients with hepatitis C. The blue is mono-infected, and the red is HIV-HCV co-infected, which is significantly less. And here is the graph survival. Again, the mono-infected is not as good as hepatitis B post-transplant, but is better than when the patient is co-infected. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about extrahepatic manifestations. Cryoglobulins are actually seen in a large number of patients with hepatitis C, that they have detectable cryoglobulins. They're rheumatoid factor positive. They don't have rheumatoid arthritis. They precipitate from cold serum, which is why I can never get a positive test, because the guy who draws the cryoglobulins goes for a smoke cup of coffee and then takes it to the lab, and they're always negative. But I actually use a rheumatoid factor just to see if they have cryoglobulins. But cryoglobulinemia, the disease, is rare. It's only seen about 2 to 3%. And HCV, and if you look at mixed cryoglobulinemia, 95% of it is due to hep C. There's a small percent due to hep B but the vast majority is hepatitis C, and you can find both the antibody and the virus in the immune complexes, and it's manifest by leukocytoclastic vasculitis, a neuropathy, membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis, and arthropathy. A third of the patients with cryoglobulinemia have MPGN, with proteinuria and microscopic hematuria, and they can vary from mild to moderate renal insufficiency. Many have hypertension. And when you do a renal biopsy, you can see immune complex de deposition in glomeruli with inflammatory cells. And the vast majority have abnormal ALTs. And these are older studies where the ALT was the upper limit of normal. So they're not an ALT of 19 for women and 30 for men. And the majority also have low complement components. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you need to be aware of in your patients with hepatitis C. It's not common, but uh, 5 to 10% of patients with mixed cryoglobulinemia can develop non-Hodgkin's. It's much more common if you have cryoglobulinemia, but it's still common 
if patients just have hepatitis C, and you know there are some very lovely data showing if you treat the patient for their hepatitis C, you will get regression of their lymphoma. It's usually marginal zone or diffuse large B cell, and it regresses after hepatitis C cure. Probably not as well known is the fact that MGUS can be seen in hepatitis C. I think this theme that's coming out is we're seeing more and more autoimmunity associated with hepatitis C disease. What about skin uh, manifestations, porphyria cutanea tarda? Depends on what study you look at, but large percentages of patients with PCT, which patients have skin blisters and vesicles after sun exposure, typically between the webs of the hands. And all these patients should be tested for hepatitis C and treated. Leukocytoclastic vasculitis, as I told you. And then another endocrine manifestation. We measure TSH before you put the patient on interferon and every three months, because interferon can augment autoimmune diseases. And what's fascinating is we treat Hep B with interferon, and it's very rare to see thyroiditis, but it's pretty common, about 14% in hepatitis C patients, and up to a quarter of these patients actually have thyroid antibodies, so they're predisposed to develop disease. And there's an association of hepatitis C with diabetes. Pa Patients over 40, those with HCV infection, have a fourfold higher risk of diabetes than those without HCV. And if you look the reverse at patients with diabetes, the prevalence of hepatitis C is two and a half fold higher than those without. And the odds ratio of having diabetes is two to 16 times higher in patients with chronic hep C than in patients with other causes of liver disease. And if you have uh, an HCV-infected liver transplant recipients, they're much more likely to have diabetes. And we don't know why, but there's a very strong association. I've told you about the nephropathies. This is a very nice study of nearly half a million adult veterans. And patients with hep C were much more likely to develop end-stage renal disease than patients without hep C. And patients who had a uh, GFR less than 30 were much more likely to have hep C than not. And in patients who were waiting renal transplant, I jump over that, oops, no. So in patients waiting renal transplant, hep C is very common, somewhere around 40 to 60%, depending on the dialysis unit, of patients have hepatitis C. And their hepatitis C can be worse after renal transplant because of immune suppression and can precipitate decompensation. So you need to assess the liver state of a patient with hep C awaiting kidney transplant. So in summary, extrahepatic manifestations of hep C are common. Cryoglobulins are common in the serum, but the disease cryoglobulinemia is rare. 
Renal diseases is particular concern, predominantly MPGN. Remember, you always have that background. Does the patient also have hepatorenal? Interferon, because it augments the immune system, can induce extrahepatic manifestations, most commonly seen with thyroid disease after interferon therapy. And assessment of liver fibrosis stage is critical prior to renal transplantation. All patients with Hep C should be assessed for fibrosis prior to starting therapy because in 2013, the duration of therapy is different if you have cirrhosis. Progression to decompensated cirrhosis can occur, so you need to think and discuss that with your patient with cirrhosis if you're treating them. You need to monitor them for varices, for hepatocellular carcinoma, for ascites, and if they have ascites, for SBP. And I think I would finally state that we need to consider transplantation when the first decompensation occurs. So we go back to our questions. Which of these is untrue? Current treatment for genotype 1 differs in patients with cirrhosis. Cryos are uncommon. All patients with cirrhosis require EGD. All patients with cirrhosis require hepatocellular monitoring. And RNA levels do not predict fibrosis stage, which is untrue. Okay, well, oops, go back to that one. Yeah. So RNA levels actually do not predict fibrosis stage. You can have a high level and a very normal liver, and you can have a low level and need a liver transplant. So I guess I'm not that good a teacher after all. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, Marion. That was great. I think we have a few minutes. If anybody has questions, you can either come up to the microphones or write them down and we'll get them up here. Oh, here we go. Go ahead. Um, I have a neomycin question. I, I've had a significant number of patients who have huge copays for rifaximine. And so I've used the and who don't tolerate lactulose. And but, and so I've used neomycin a fair amount with really good results, but I've been warned that, oh, you shouldn't be doing that because of the risk of renal disease, because of the risk of ototoxicity. But I thought it was very poorly absorbed. Can you So actually, um, deafness and renal disease is not uncommon, but that's all we had for 40 years. And we had few patients that actually got into trouble. But rifaximin is so much better in terms of side effects. Sometimes you can contact the company and they will provide support for the patients. With, that's what we've done and got them to absorb the copays. Okay. So we have some uh, questions that were handed in here. So here's the first one, Marion. So it says, Hep C patient who develops mild renal insufficiency, do they need a renal biopsy to diagnose MPGN? Uh, I guess that's the first part. And then if, if they do, if they are found to have that, do you treat their hepatitis C? So um, you can look at the urine because most patients with renal insufficiency with cirrhosis 
have, will have a bland urine and low sodium. They may have uh, uh, hepatorenal. But if patients have a, have a sediment with red cells and casts, that's telling you that they have renal disease. You also look for proteinuria. So there are two simple things you can do to say, does the patient have renal disease? Then you'll say, well, what sort of renal disease do they have? Do they have IgA nephropathy, MPGN? MPGN is by far the most common. And most, depending on your renal uh, colleagues, most of them won't actually do a biopsy for you. They'll just say, treat them. Because if they have hep C and you treat them, they have MPGN, you have improved. It's not 100%. It's about 60 to 70, depending what studies you look at, improve their renal function. And some patients that in the past we've had on low-dose, long-term interferons, I think it'll be exciting when we can cure people with DAAs, will that eradicate their renal disease? Obviously, that's a research question. We don't know the answer. And many of them will have normal renal functions. So you don't have to worry about the ribavirin piece. Obviously, if they have renal dysfunction, then ribavirin is a big issue. And how do you use it? Well, it varies. Some people start the... My European colleagues start the ribavirin a week before the interferon at 200 a day. And then, if the patient's tolerating it, they add the interferon. And then, if they're still tolerating it, they'll increase the ribavirin. But this is based on no data. Um, what, what, the important thing to know is ribavirin is dangerous in renal disease. Send to your enemies. <laughs> OK, here's another one. So would you? refer to transplant a patient with a history of decompensation, varices banded times two, who was also HIV co-infected. So I guess getting at how often HIV positive patients are transplanted. So it, yes, I would refer such a patient because the patient has a one in four chance of being alive at five years after his banding. And therefore, if he or she is going to get to transplant, needs to be evaluated early. And if the patient has hepatitis C, we know that if they have a low BMI, they have a terrible outcome. We know if they have a very high BMI, they have a terrible outcome. So we're stuck in really trying to find the optimal time to treat them. And post-transplant, they seem to go one of two ways. We've had patients clear their infection spontaneously, which we've never seen in mono-infected. And we've had patients develop severe recurrent disease and die in the first year. So these are the patients I think all DAAs are going to make the biggest difference. Because you have a chance to eradicate the virus going into transplant, and then they'll behave like everybody else with HIV, not hep C, who have splendid outcomes. And then providers, more and more transplant centers, will be transplanting the patients. I mean, we do a lot at UCSF. There aren't a lot of places around the country. OK. So it said uh, you recommended ultrasound every six months with cirrhosis. How about patients without cirrhosis on an initial screen? How often should we repeat ultrasound or AFP? Or supposedly, how often should you rescreen them to stage That's, them? It's a great question. Uh, for hepatitis B, because cancer can occur without cirrhosis, there are no data. There are no guidelines. 
So I do it every couple of years, two or three years. If someone has active disease, I might do it more. For hepatitis C, the data are clear. You don't get cancer unless you have severe fibrosis. So then the argument comes, F3, F4. So some providers where patients have F3 will start screening. But if they don't, you do an ultrasound when you meet the patient. So that may be the only ultrasound they get until they progress. How often do you rebiopsy them or restage them, Marion? How, how long do you wait between staging? So they used to tell us to uh, stage a patient every five years. I think now we have um, transient elastography. We should be able to monitor the patient every year and see if they have progression of disease. And I think, you know, liver biopsy was completely out of favor five years ago. Now everybody does it. You know, you couldn't find an ID doctor who wanted to biopsy five years ago. Now you can hardly find one who doesn't. And I, because of these dreadful drugs, we don't want to put everybody on it while we wait for something better. But I think the pendulum will swing back if we have better non-invasive methods. Okay. Should all patients with a history of encephalopathy permanently be on both rifaximin and lactulose? Um, do these meds decrease the bioavailability of other meds they are taking, like HIV medications? Um, rifaximin, no to bioavailability. Lactulose, it's interesting. I would have said no till a month ago when a patient of mine developed diarrhea, not treated with lactulose, but terrible diarrhea, worse than his usual HIV diarrhea, and was being given all these medications to treat irritable bowel. He didn't have an infection. And his HIV viral load, which had been undetectable for years, went up. His HPV DNA, which had been undetectable for years, went up. Mm -hmm. So there was obviously, you know, uh, Betty Dong, who's doing the DAA talk, will tell you my eyes glaze over when I try and think of drug-drug interactions. But clearly something was happening, and he was better off with his diarrhea. So I think hmm. I haven't seen a patient, and I don't know if others have, who've uh, had loss of therapy because of diarrhea with mm -hmm. lactulose. Mm -hmm. We aim for three to five bowel movements a day, not ten. Okay, here's one. Are post-transplant patients treated for their HCV if never treated before? Um, and assess for fibrosis equals biopsy for all? I think we've already kind of addressed this one. But So when, are, when do you treat post-transplant patients for their HCV, I think? So there are two sort, thoughts. One of them is you treat preemptively. So everybody who goes into transplant with virus, 100% has virus on the way out. 5% will get severe recurrence and die in the first year. 25 to 30% will have cirrhosis in five to seven years. So the fascinating thing is two-thirds of people will die of something else. And that's the data for the non-transplant. Why is the new liver giving them that reprieve? Because they were dying in the first place. We do protocol biopsies every year and treat if they have F2 or higher. I think if we had better drugs that weren't toxic, that didn't interact with calcineurin inhibitors, we treat everybody before transplant if we could or after. And non-invasive methods, 
Fibrosure is not much good because mm -hmm. if you have unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, it's a falsely elevated, so your HIV patients don't not much good for them. Uh, Fibrospect, they're all sort of, as Dr. Nagy said, about 80% if they say it's F0 is correct, about 80% if they say it's F4 is correct, and in the middle is nowhere. <laughs> Transient elastography is better, and I think may well become the technique we use in the future. Okay. Um, we have one more question, but it's about raltegravir and kind of drug interaction, so maybe that would be better to save till after Ben's oh, talk. Oh, great idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Mary.